You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the book of Matthew, the 21st chapter. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read beginning at verse 1, we'll read down to verse 11. The Word of God says this, And when they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them and immediately He will send them. And this took place in order that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their garments on them. And he sat on the garments. And most of the crowd spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning we have to be together. It is a joy to worship you, our God. In the name of our Savior, by the power supplied by your Spirit, in accordance with your Word, in a way that gives glory to your name, and in a way that builds us up in our faith. We thank you for these means that you've ordained, our spiritual health and well-being. Lord, we gather today as the church. This is what you command. This is what you have set forth in your Word because this is what is good and healthy for your people. But we are aware that there are those who gather with us on these Lord's Days who are not a part of your church yet. They don't know your Son. And we pray that even today might be the day when your Son is set before their eyes, that they would see Jesus with a new set of eyes, that your Spirit would work in their hearts in such a way that regeneration would occur, that new birth would be granted, and they would see the Son of God as their Savior. They would embrace Him by faith and be saved. Lord, we ask Your help in the hour of preaching. I need Your help. I cannot do this without You. And we need Your help as we listen. We can't do this without You. And so we ask for Your blessing this day. We'll give You thanks for what You do. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our Lord did not just teach His disciples about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. 
the mindset, the attitude necessary for greatness in the kingdom of heaven. He modeled it. The Son of God, the God-man, modeled the very mindset that you and I are called to live with every day. The mindset that we're to embrace, if we think about what it means to please the Lord, if we think about what it means to have some sort of lasting influence on behalf of the kingdom of heaven, He modeled the mindset that you and I are to embrace from our hearts. He set Himself forth as the model to His disciples. In fact, He talked about this mindset in the context of His own sacrifice. Matthew 20, verse 25, But Jesus called them to Him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. There's the mindset. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, even as the Son of Man, as Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So not only does he set himself forth as the model of the mindset for greatness, but he does so in the context of his own death, of his own sacrifice. He's going to give his life a ransom for many. The humility of Jesus. That humility, the humility that is seen in the Son of God, is a unique humility. It's interesting, isn't it? He's the model for the mindset that we're to embrace, and yet we are also to understand that humility in Jesus is different than humility in us. It's, it's still humility. It's real humility. It's genuine humility, but it is unique because of who He was and who He is. have got to be careful. We think about Christ's humility, and then we think about our humility. What made Christ's humility unique? Well, for him, humility was embracing a lowly place when he deserved the highest place. It was embracing a servant's place when he is the master. He deserves the master's place. It was him willingly, for a time, laying aside the expression of his glory on behalf of a mission to rescue and deliver us, for a time relinquishing what is rightly His and what will be His for all time to win for us eternal life. He accepted suffering that He didn't deserve, a rejection that He didn't deserve, so that you and I would have an acceptance with God that we will never deserve. Christ's humility is the greatest one Willingly embracing the place of the lowliest one. That's His humility. Ours is different. For you and I to embrace humility is for you and I to embrace reality. It's to embrace the truth about our smallness. It's not the greatest ones taking the place of the lowliest one. It is those who are truly lowly seeing that they're lowly seeing the greatness of our God and the smallness of ourselves. 
so that we willingly from our hearts embrace the role, embrace the place that is fitting for someone who has been ransomed. We deserved hell. We've been given life. What kind of mindset then should belong to us? What is too lowly for us? What are we above in the terms of service if we really realize who we are? So it's true, Jesus is our model when it comes to, the, to willingly embracing a lowly place, but it's still unique because of the greatness of His person. What we see in our verses today demonstrates both the majesty of Jesus and the graciousness of Jesus. He is going to be formally presented to the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, what we commonly here refer to as the triumphal entry. And His presentation has been divinely ordained. It embraces elements that speak clearly divinely ordained to do this, and it does this, speaks clearly of both His majesty, the greatness of His person, and His graciousness, the lowly place that He willingly embraces to save us from our sins. That's what we're going to see together in our verses today. This has been called the coronation of Jesus. In some sense, of course, it was, but it is the most unusual coronation in the history of the world. We don't know anything about kings in our culture, but we've seen something about monarchy on our television sets or maybe in our reading. Think about how kings are usually presented to their people. The pomp, the splendor, the strength that is communicated even symbolically in the way that they're presented to their people. And then think about that and think about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as He makes His way into the city of Jerusalem. How He was presented. How His coronation looked when He made His way into the city of Jerusalem. This morning we're going to see three things about His coronation. You can write these down if you want to in advance. We'll look at each of them. We're going to see that it was carefully prepared for. His presentation was carefully prepared for. Second, we're going to see that it was prophetically prepared for. The symbolism should have been recognized. It was able to be recognized because the Word of God prepared the people for what they were going to see. It was prophetically prepared for. And then third, we're going to see it was a presentation, as I've mentioned, that symbolically communicates the greatness of the person of Jesus, yet the graciousness of His mission. First of all, let's look at the preparation for His presentation. Verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, And when they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately He will send them. Now before we zero in on the details here, I just want to point out that what we're looking at, beginning in chapter 21 of Matthew, 
is the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. He makes his entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, March 29, A.D. 33. I think that's the best date, the most likely date. There's a great work that Andreas Kostenberger did on that issue that you can find and read. I think he makes a great case for that being the date of the triumphal entry at Palm Sunday, March 29, A.D. 33. He's going to be crucified on Friday. Thursday sunset to Friday sunset, the Passover, April the 3rd, A.D. 33. He's going to be raised from the dead that following Sunday. These are eight days, the last eight days of Christ's earthly mission. I mention that because I want you to recognize how much emphasis the gospel writers place on eight days. Just taking Matthew's account, from Matthew 21 to Matthew 28. That's eight chapters. For eight chapters, most of what Matthew focuses on are these eight days. And that's not just true of Matthew, that's true of Mark, it's true of Luke, it's true of John. James Montgomery Boyce commented on this. He said this, the most important life ever lived was that of Jesus Christ. And the most important part of that life was the momentous week that ended it. The final week is so important that the Gospels give a disproportionate amount of space to it. Jesus lived 33 years. His active ministry occupied three years. But large portions of the Gospels are given over to the events of just the last eight days. Matthew devotes one-fourth of his Gospel, chapters 21 through 28, one-fourth of his Gospel to it. Mark uses one-third of his Gospel chapters 11 through 16, Luke gives a fifth of his chapters to the events of this last week, chapters 19, 28 to 24. Most remarkable of all, John gives half of his gospel, chapters 12 through 21. Taken together, there are 89 chapters in the gospels, but 29 and a half of these, exactly one-third, recount what happened between the triumphal entry and Jesus' resurrection. Such is the case because these are the climactic events, not only of Jesus' life, but of all history. They were planned from before the foundation of the world, and our salvation from sin and wrath depends on them. Close quote. One-third of all the gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is devoted to eight days. Now, I want you to think about that in terms of your own salvation. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a kind of Christianity it wants to talk about Jesus, the man, his earthly life, his moral example, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the social champion, you know, on behalf of those who are poor and all the rest. They want to focus on Jesus in a way that what is most important is how his example would influence you externally, influence I would say natural people, people who have not been born again, influence people in terms of how they think and what they would choose and their kindness and their generosity. Let's just look at Jesus in a way, let's focus on Jesus in a way that what's most important is how he lived. Well, how he lived is vitally important. His death would not have accomplished anything if he wasn't who he was and hadn't lived as he lived. But isn't it interesting that the gospel writers devote one-third of their attention to eight days because in those eight days, 
You have his presentation that leads to his arrest, that leads to the mock trials, that leads to his crucifixion, that then leads to his resurrection. In other words, Jesus had to die to save us from our sins. And there's a kind of Christianity, it's a false Christianity, that avoids the cross. It avoids the blood of Jesus. It avoids the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, he wants to talk about the life of Jesus. He doesn't want to talk about a substitutionary sacrifice that was given on our behalf to rescue us from the wrath of God. It's good for us to remember that we focus on Jesus rightly, not just by thinking about how He lived, but thinking about His death and His resurrection. So we're entering now onto the sacred ground of those final eight days. It says in verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage. Bethphage is the name of the little village in Greek, in the Greek text. In English, you could pronounce it Bethphage or Bethphage. Some have pronounced it. Don't you love Bible names? It's kind of like just names of cities in general. The people who lived then knew exactly what to call it. You know, I came here from the little town of Elgin, E-L-G-I-N. How many people pronounce that Elgin? So don't ever freak out about Bible names, okay? Do your best. Do your best. But they come to Bethphage. This is the only reason we know about this village because of its mention in Scripture. Archaeologists don't have any information on it, etc. So we find out about it here in the Bible. It existed, we know, on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem along with Bethany, another small village. Matthew tells us about this, not only because it's factual, Jesus was there, but it's sort of an alert that now He's on the doorstep of Jerusalem. He is right there. And the main point I want us to recognize from these three verses is that Jesus is initiating and orchestrating the way He's going to enter Jerusalem. Jesus is doing this. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, He's giving the instructions, go into the village opposite you. You're going to find a donkey tied there, a colt with her, untie them, bring them to me. If someone says something to you, here's how you're to answer them. This is how they're going to respond. What is going on? Jesus is Himself planning His presentation to the daughter of Zion, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jesus is not someone surprised by what is going to happen over these eight days. He's not someone sort of swept along by the fervor of the crowd into the circumstances in which he's going to find himself. He is choosing this. He is sovereign over this. This is something you see about the entire last week of his life. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is Lord. He wants this. He desires this. He has set his face like a flint toward the city of Jerusalem. And now he is planning the very way that he'll be presented to the daughter of Zion. Now I mentioned that in this planning, you have both the majesty of Jesus and the graciousness of Jesus on display. Let me point out why I say that. First of all, think about the greatness of Jesus. How do we see the greatness of Jesus in these three verses? I'm going to give you four ways that we see his greatness. First of all, you see his greatness by the very fact that He is preparing for His presentation to Israel. I said a moment ago, He doesn't ride into Jerusalem on this colt because of the fervor of the crowd. He is the one who sends His disciples to get these animals. So He's planning this. He has walked 
all the way to this village. So it's not like he couldn't walk into the city of Jerusalem. He's riding there on purpose. I mentioned that he's not swept along by the fervor of the crowds. He's already demonstrated he knows how to avoid that. Remember in John chapter 6, when they were ready to come and make him king by force, John 6, 14, when people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus will not be an instrument, a tool for people with political aspirations to make use of him. He knows how to say no to that and to avoid that. That's not what this is. This is Jesus himself preparing for his entrance into Jerusalem. What does that say? It says he knows that he's the Messiah. He knows he's Israel's promised king. He knows he is God in human flesh on the earth. He is providing for his own coronation. And that speaks of his greatness. If he were not the Messiah and he's making these plans to present himself as the Messiah, then he's something very different than he really is. At that point, he would be proud, presumptuous, delusional. Here's someone who would think he's a king when he's not. But that's not who Jesus is. He knows exactly who he is. The Son of God has come to earth. And now it is time. It is time. He has fulfilled his earthly mission to the point. It is now time to present himself to the daughter of Zion. And he is preparing for that presentation. The very preparation speaks of his greatness. And I would just remind us again, you can't stand in the middle on Jesus. You cannot say, well, he was a good man, a good teacher, a well-meaning prophet as some of the world's religions want to do with him. He was a great social champion, but not the Son of God. You can't say that about him and be honest with the evidence. Because someone who would make a plan like this, if he's not who he claims to be, is not a good man and not a good prophet and not a good teacher and not a social champion. This is someone who would be proud and delusional. But he is the Son of God, as Scripture makes plain. Second evidence of his greatness, not just that he planned this, but the answer that Jesus gives to his disciples if they run into any sort of trouble getting these animals, the answer that he puts in their mouths speaks of His greatness. Came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. Who is, who is sending His men to get the animals. Who needs the animals? From the mouth of Jesus Himself, He says, the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. Now some have asked what the men found there. Was it prearranged? Has Jesus already talked to these people? The animals were already set in place. All of it set up in advance. I don't think so. I'll talk about why in just a moment. But think about this. Even if that were the case, there's still something majestic on display here because that would mean that the owners of these animals were believers in Jesus as Lord. 
so that Jesus would have been giving his men sort of the secret passcode, right? Here's what you're to say to them when you come. The Lord has need of them. Either way you go, this is Jesus with an awareness of his own majesty. Because he gives to his disciples the answer, the Lord needs them. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is doing what he's doing as Lord. So he's preparing a presentation as Israel's king. That speaks of his greatness. If you run into any kind of trouble, tell them the Lord needs these animals. That speaks of his greatness. Third, the fulfillment of the words of Jesus speaks of his majesty. He tells his men exactly what they're to do, what they're going to find, what they can expect, what they're to do if they meet with what he expects. And every word of it came to pass. I want you to remember there are no cell phones in the world of Jesus. There's no email. There's no texting. There's no paging. If anybody can remember paging. No pagers there. No, Jesus has been walking. Walking comes down from the north. This side of the Jordan River crosses over at Jericho. He's been on foot. In that world, if someone says, I'm coming, you know, send someone ahead, you could have some general idea of when they were going to arrive, but there's no way you could have a specific time in place. Oh, he'll be here at 3.30. He just texted me. He's only 15 minutes away. And there's nothing like that. So I don't think this was prearranged. In fact, they just arrived at the village. There's no time to send someone ahead. I mean, they're there. No, I think what you have here is a display of divine omniscience. As we see in other places in the gospel accounts, Jesus knew things that other people didn't know. At times, he's answering questions based on what he knows to be going on in the minds and hearts of the people talking to him. He's able to say to the woman at the well, you've had five husbands. And the man you're with now is not your husband. Who knows that? God in human flesh knows that. And so he's able to tell these men, here's what you're going to find when you go into the village in front of you, when you go into Bethphage, here's what you're going to find. And when you go to take the animals, here's what's going to be said. And when they say that to you, here's what you're to answer. And when you answer, this is what they're going to do. Notice he tells them they're going to come back with the animals. Immediately, he will send them. Jesus knows all of this. Luke's account gives it to us this way, Luke 19, verse 29, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Luke says they found it just like he said. And it was the owners of these two animals that said, why are you untying it? And when the two disciples gave the answer, Jesus gave them, the Lord has need of it. Take it. Mark's account, chapter 11, verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany of the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. Isn't that the graciousness of Jesus on display also? I'm not there yet, but isn't it gracious of Him that He let the owners know, you'll get them back very soon. They'll be sent back to you immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to Him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So how do we see the majesty of Jesus in this scene? He is planning His own presentation to Israel as their king. He prepares an answer for His men. If anyone asks them about what they're going to do, tell them the Lord has need of it. And then exactly what He says will take place is what takes place. The animals are there just like He said. The question is asked just like He prepared them for. The answer is given just like they were given. And the result is just what He said would happen. So that divine omniscience is on display in these details. But there's a fourth evidence of His greatness on display in, in, the, in the combination of these accounts, and that is the comments of the gospel writers about the cult that Jesus would ride on. Now Matthew alone mentions two animals. Mark mentions one, Luke mentions one. Why does Matthew mention two when the others do not? Well, Jesus rode on the colt, but it seems that the other donkey was its mother, right? The foal of a pack animal. This is what Jesus is going to ride on. If you've ever watched horse races, anybody ever watched like the Kentucky Derby? And you'll notice as they go around with those horses before they get into the starting gate, they'll ride beside them with other horses. There's a calming effect, especially in the midst of crowd and noise, that one animal can have on another. So this colt that Jesus is going to ride on is going to be accompanied by its mother. They're going to lay garments on both. Jesus didn't ride on two animals. He rode on one. But garments will be placed on both. Those garments serve like a saddle. Jesus sits on top of the garments. But He's riding on this colt. And both Mark and Luke mention something very interesting. Verse 2, Mark 11 Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, here's the statement, on which no one has ever sat. On which no one has ever sat. Luke 19, verse 29, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Why would the gospel writers mention that no one had ever been on this cult before? Well, the answer, I believe, is because it's holy. The one who rides on this animal is holy, and his ride into Jerusalem will be no common ride. He is not going to ride on an animal that's been used before. He's going to ride on an animal that has never been set on before. In that sense, the animal itself will be set apart for him, holy in that sense, reserved for him alone, which testifies of His majesty. The Bible tells us that when King David fled from Absalom, then made his entrance back among the people of God, he rode back on a donkey. So it's not like riding on this animal is beneath kingly dignity. But even then, when King Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem, He's riding on an animal that no one has ever sat on before. 
And so the greatness, the majesty, the holiness of His person is testified to by this animal being reserved just for Him. Just for Him. The greatness of Jesus on display in this most unusual coronation. But now think about the graciousness of Jesus. How is His graciousness on display? His gentleness? His mission? When we think about His first advent, His first coming into the world. Jesus is coming again to judge. But He didn't come into the world the first time to judge. He came to save. And this coronation speaks of that mission. I said it earlier, Jesus could have walked into the city of Jerusalem. So the very fact that He arranges to ride in says that something symbolic is going on here. In fact, in the Gospel accounts, you'll find Jesus sometimes traveling on a boat, but you'll never find Him traveling on an animal like this. He's always walking when He's on land. Here He is about to ride in on an animal. Why? Answer, there's something symbolic taking place. What is being symbolized? I believe two things are being symbolized. His role as servant is symbolized. He is Yahweh's suffering servant. Matthew adds this from Zechariah 9. We'll talk about the quotation in a moment. Look at verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, I think is the sense of it, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. He's going to ride in, he's going to present himself riding on a beast of burden. The one who will carry the burden of our sins in His body all the way to His death on the cross to pay for them all. His graciousness is seen as He rides on a beast of burden to pay for our sins. This speaks of His role as servant. I also believe it speaks of Him as Savior. That is, His mission is a peaceful one. His mission is a rescuing one. He comes as king to rescue. He comes as king to deliver. He comes as king to save. He's not coming as a warrior in a chariot. He's not coming with an army. He's not riding on a general's steed. He is on a, a lowly beast of burden, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Because He's not coming to take the throne by force. Jesus made this very point when He stood before Pilate. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Makes this same point when He was arrested. Matthew 26, 46, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those 
who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out? as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Don't you know that I can escape this if I want it at any time? Haven't I already demonstrated all the times that you would have killed me, and yet I sat there in the open and taught? This is happening that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. This is not me being conquered. This is the conqueror giving himself over to the circumstances necessary for our rescue. This is the deliverer. This is the Savior. And so the very way that he makes his entrance into the city of Jerusalem testifies to that. The lowliness of it, sitting on a beast of burden, but the saving nature of it at the same time because... He's not coming with an army. He's, the people who are following him are waving palm branches. They're not carrying swords. Jesus made this point whenever he taught about his purpose for coming into the world. John 12, 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I mean, isn't Jesus going to be the judge? Isn't he going to condemn the world one day in its sin? Yes, he will, but not in his first coming. That's going to be reserved for his second coming. His first coming was not to judge or to condemn, but to save. And so he's going to enter into Jerusalem, not as a conquering king, but as a saving king. The presentation of Jesus speaks both of his majesty and his graciousness. Second thing I want you to see in our text, this presentation is not only prepared for by Jesus, it's pre prepared for by Scripture. The prophecy of Christ's presentation. Verse 4, And this took place in order that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. You say, how was anybody to recognize this symbolism? Jesus chose to present himself in a way that was symbolic. How would anybody ever recognize what was being symbolized? The answer is they should have recognized it because Scripture spoke of it. Scripture prepared them for it. Jesus is simply doing exactly what the Bible said the Messiah would do. And Matthew recognizes this which is why he's giving us Scripture here. Matthew's saying, I want you to recognize that this should have been recognized. The symbolism should have been picked up on. It should have been acknowledged because the Bible spoke of it. Say to the daughter of Zion. This is from Isaiah 62, 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. The rest of the quote comes from Zechariah 9, 
Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Both of those passages, Isaiah 62, Zechariah 9, emphasize that the Messiah is going to make His presentation to the daughter of Zion in a way that He says, I am here to save. He comes in peace and to make peace for sinners. When you go on to read Zechariah 9.10, this becomes unmistakable. Listen to the next verse in Zechariah 9, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The armies will be conquered, and peace will be the result. There, there, there won't be the instruments of war. There'll be the evidence of peace. Well, his coming the first time emphasized that. Not coming as a warrior, coming as the peacemaker. By the way, isn't it interesting? I just want to point this out. What Isaiah 62 spoke of and what Zechariah 9 spoke of, it was fulfilled literally. Literally. This is what many well-meaning people do with the Old Testament. They begin to allegorize and spiritualize what they read in the Old Testament as though it has no literal meaning. These verses were fulfilled literally as Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem as He did. You say, well, what about the other aspects of Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9 that speak of worldwide peace and Messiah ruling from shore to shore and all the war instruments being removed and, and this great season, as it were, of the earth flourishing and riches and all the rest? And Well, that's going to be literally fulfilled also. In the second coming of Jesus, when He ushers in a literal thousand-year kingdom on the earth. These are literal promises. They're going to be fulfilled literally. He comes in peace. He comes to deliver. Leon Morris said this, the important point in the prophecy is that this king is meek. When the prophet says that he comes riding on an ass, he is contrasting him with the chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow, Zechariah 9.10, it is the fact that the king is a man of peace that is distinctive. In antiquity, a king would not normally enter his capital riding on a donkey. He would ride in proudly on a war horse, or perhaps he would march in at the head of his troops. An ass was the animal of a man of peace. It would be used by a priest or a merchant or an eminent citizen. So symbolically, Jesus communicates, I'm coming in peace to produce peace. He's coming to give His life, to deliver God's people. R.T. France said this, the emphasis in Matthew's version falls on humble. The same word as gentle in 11.29 and meek in chapter 5, verse 5. The portrait of the Lord's servant in chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. A trait which is demonstrated by the use of a donkey not because it's beneath his royal dignity, but because it contrasted with the war horse of the military leader. Matthew thus emphasizes what surely Jesus' symbolic act was designed to show, that he is Messiah indeed, 
but a Messiah whose triumphal route leads to suffering and humiliation, not to a show of force. What road is this great king on? He is on a road that leads to his death. He's on a road that leads to a cross. So, the humility of Jesus, His majesty and His graciousness, on display in the fact that this presentation was planned by Him, including the elements that spoke both of His majesty and His graciousness, emphasized by the fact that this is scripturally prepared for. The Old Testament told us it was coming. How then did it actually work out? The planning is done. The men are sent. The animals are procured. It's all in place. How now would it work out? Look at verse 6. We see now the presentation of the servant king. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their garments on them. And he sat on the garments. And most of the crowd spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road, and the crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. What will happen as Jesus rides in. But what the gospel writers tell us, what Matthew tells us, Jesus meets with an enormous response. I mean, this is actually sort of surprising because we've seen Him shift away from teaching the crowds and all that to mostly instructing His disciples in the last part of His earthly mission. You would think that as He makes His way into Jerusalem, maybe it would be a subdued sort of response, but it's not. It is an enormous response. When you remember you have hundreds of thousands of people making their way into the city, pilgrims for the purpose of the Passover, there's a tremendous a throng of people who have heard about Him and heard of what He has done, and the response is, is enormous. He is mounted. They place Him on the colt. Their garments on the back of the colt. The crowds are elated. They're putting their garments down in front of the animal. That's a symbolic way of saying, we submit. We bow before this king. We receive his authority. The palm branches being laid down, waved as people shout, speaks of joy and a sense of peace and salvation. You find this, First Maccabees describing the palm branch aspect of it, to Israel's great military victory. This is what people do when they feel they're being freed, liberated. The Word of God is declared. This is Scripture being shouted out in verse 9. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a cry for salvation. Save, save. Psalm 118, verse 25, Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless You from the house of the Lord. Here they are shouting out statements like that from the Psalms. Psalm 118, verse 25. Again, R.T. France has this comment. He said, Hosanna is a Greek form of the Hebrew words translated save us in Psalm 118, verse 25, a phrase which had already come to be used 
more as an exclamation of praise than a prayer in Jewish worship. From the next verse of Psalm 118 also comes the next words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the last of the Hillel Psalms, which were chanted antiphonally at all the great festivals of Israel. These two verses forming a climax in the performance. As an expression of religious enthusiasm, these exclamations would come naturally to a crowd of Passover pilgrims. So these are the shouts and the songs that were sung at the various feasts. Here we are headed to the Passover. This would already be in their minds and their mouths. And now they meet with Jesus and they're exclaiming these things in reference to Him. They acknowledge the authority of Jesus. I mean, they're saying He's the King. Mark 11, verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Even in our own verses, Hosanna to the son of David. That's a messianic title. Luke 19, verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. They are declaring Jesus to be their King. Why do I say it's a, a large, enormous response? I mean, Luke just said his disciples are crying this out and praising him and all the rest. Maybe we've exaggerated the effect of this. Maybe it was actually something more subdued. Well, I don't think so. Here's why I say that. Because the city of Jerusalem is shaken. Verse 10. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. That's a strong word. It means to be, to be shaken. And it, it can either mean positively like, man, this is fantastic. Or it can mean negatively, this is troubling. But the city is in an uproar as a result of this event. So that those who are confused are asking for clarification. The identity of Jesus is proclaimed, verse 10, and when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? Right? Who is this one being declared the Messiah? Who is this one whom you're calling the son of David? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. I want you to understand, I think I read one commentator who thought this is already an evidence that they're not really proclaiming Jesus as king. They've already sort of lost the sense of it by the time they're asked who it is because they just say he's a prophet. I don't think that's right at all. I think what's happening is they're declaring him as the Messiah and people are saying, who is being declared as the Messiah? And the answer is, this is Jesus, the prophet who came from Nazareth, Galilee. So they're just identifying this one who is being proclaimed as the Messiah. So I don't think the crowds at that moment who have been praising Jesus are now doubting who He is. Now they still believe He's the Messiah. They've been praising Him that way. They're simply answering the question, who is this? And then the truth about Jesus is affirmed. We're going to get to this next week, but look down to verse 15. The next thing He'll do is cleanse the temple. Verse 15, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which He had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Won't you disavow this? Won't you put a distance between yourself and these claims? 
Instead of distancing himself, Jesus said to them, yes. I hear what they're saying. Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. You know what he's saying? The kids have it right. The children have it right. Far from distancing himself, Jesus affirms. He prepares for this presentation. That affirms his understanding of his own identity. The Scriptures prepared for this presentation. Then when he makes his way into the city of Jerusalem, the whole city is shaken by it. The response is enormous, and the proclamation is accurate that this is the Son of David. This is the Messiah. This is the Deliverer. This is the one who has come to save what a glorious Sunday. The sun is shining. But he'll be crucified by Friday. How does it change so swiftly? Because it's possible to say things about Jesus without a full understanding of what you're saying. I'm not saying that all these people were unbelievers. I am saying that I would imagine some of these people change their tune. Because when they're thinking about deliverance, they're thinking about an earthly kingdom set up at that moment, which involves driving out the Romans. They're not thinking about a substitutionary sacrifice on a cross to deliver us from our sins. They have a, we could say, a Jesus of their own making, a Messiah of their own making, a misunderstanding of His mission. So what I want to ask us this morning is, what do you say about what Jesus says of Himself? Do you agree with Christ's presentation of Himself? Are you someone who says, you know what, these eight days were the most significant part of the most significant life ever lived. His living was necessary for His dying. Our righteousness is given to us as a gift by virtue of who He was and how He lived, imputed to our account so that God now treats us as if we lived the life of His Son. But His living could not have answered for us without His dying. And His dying was necessary to pay for all of the sins that we have all committed throughout the entirety of our lives sins that are still being committed and lives that are still being lived so that I stand before God completely forgiven because His Son, the conquering King, rode into Jerusalem not to conquer by force, but to save us through death, to give His life to rescue us from our sins. And then He was raised from the dead three days later, and lives forevermore. I forget the exact line, but we sang it this morning, sang about it, the one who now stands as my guard, my protector, is alive. At the right hand of the Father, interceding for us every moment, His own merits argued on behalf of our acceptance with God and the everlasting life that you and I will receive. The very way He made His way into Jerusalem testifies both of His majesty and His graciousness. 
Have you ever received Jesus on those terms? He is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God who came to this earth, born of a virgin, took to himself a sinless human nature that he might live for us and die for us and rescue us. And he came in peace to produce peace. He's the peacemaker. And only in him do I have peace with God. And only in him are my sins forgiven. I embrace the Jesus of the Bible for the saving of my soul. What I need is not moral influence. What I need is deliverance. And he died to give me a new standing with God and a new life. I embrace Jesus for life. Have you embraced him like that? Because I say to you, that's the church of Jesus Christ. Those are true disciples. Those whose eyes have been opened to who Jesus really is, and they've embraced him as he is on his turn. Is that you? And if not, I exhort you with all my heart to cry out to him right now and ask him to have mercy upon your poor soul and to give you life you have never had before and would never have without him, to forgive you of all your sins and to give you a, a place of acceptance with God, not based upon who you are and what you've done, but based upon who he is and what he has done. The church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this glorious, true, accurate account of what our Savior did, how it all began, those final eight days, to save us from our sins. May we love Him as He is, trust in Him as He is, embrace Him as He is, rely on Him completely as He is, the only Savior you've given to mankind. And may we glory not in ourselves, but in Him. May our boast be in Him alone. His humility is a model for ours, but it's different from ours. He is the one who deserves the highest place, embracing the lowliest place, to deliver us, the lowliest ones, who deserved your wrath, but instead have made us heirs of His lofty inheritance. What grace is on display, what mercy is on display in what you've done for us. We give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.